Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail и ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We have a great show today. Eric Bollert is here, the media critic who writes at Press Run. We're going to get into it about how the media failed in 2016 and how it continues to fail. So the title of this episode is Bad News, which is different than fake news. Different than fake news. When I go back and think now and look back at what the media companies knew about Trump in 2016 as he was running for president and what the Republicans knew about him as he was running for president atop their party's ticket, what the media chose not to tell us about him, that he was a money launderer for the Russian mob, that his father was a frontman for the Italian mob for years, basically he's a second generation criminal. This seemed like maybe something important that the American people maybe should have known about. But no, the media like to focus on Trump as maverick, as a successful billionaire, as a self-made man, which is preposterous, as a guy that was funding his own campaign, which turned out to be a lie, as a guy that was going to come to Washington and drain the swamp, which is... It's it's laughably ridiculous. It was ridiculous then, but it's it's really ridiculous now in hindsight. The media had some idea of what we were getting ourselves into. They knew about the mob stuff. They knew about the Russia ties. They chose not to make it a big deal for whatever reason. And we're going to get into why they did that. Strange thing about Trump, you know. So much free coverage that he got on CNN and elsewhere. Billions of dollars worth of free media coverage for this guy. Why? Why did that happen? We're going to get into it with with Eric Bollard in a minute. The thing is, the newspapers are still onto this. The New York Times wrote another piece about the the Trump voter thing. They One of their reporters went to a diner in Springfield, Illinois, last weekend... 
and they released this clip just of the of the guy they were interviewing talking. It has to be heard to be believed what these people think. Let's take a listen. The liberal media wants you to believe that Joe Biden won the election fair and square. How did he get 82 million votes? Hillary got 66 million votes in 2016. We're supposed to believe 13 million more people voted for Sleepy Joe after four years of incredible success under Donald Trump? No way! What actually happened is pretty obvious if you listen to people who know, people like Mike Flynn and Mike Pompeo and Lynn Wood and my pillow guy and uh, Charles in charge. See, the entire federal government was incorporated in 1871 when they passed the District of Columbia Organic Act. Congress terminated the actual government, made it into a corporation. Every president since then has been fake. Just a puppet installed by the corporation. That's why Obama was allowed to hold office, even though he was obviously born in Kenya. Presidents were inaugurated on March the 4th until 1933, when FDR took the U.S. off the gold standard, which was obviously ordered to do by the Bilderbergers, the Illuminati, the Rothschilds, and the aliens. You're looking at me with your mouth hanging open, so maybe you're too dumb to understand that come March the 4th, Trump will return to Washington to be inaugurated on the correct and proper date. He will be the first legitimate president since Ulysses S. Grant. Once he's sworn in, boom, the arrests are coming down. The secret police going to round up and execute Mike Pence, Nancy Pelosi, Chief Justice Roberts, Dr. Fauci, Pocahontas, AOC and the squad, Robert Mueller and Bill Gates, who will be forced to call off the coronavirus hoax. Then Trump will take a new first lady, Kim Kardashian. Isn't this obvious? Why are you liberal media guys so fucking stupid? All right, that wasn't really a Trump voter in a diner in Springfield, Illinois. However, everything that that guy said, and that guy was me using my uh, Bear's voice, which is really bad. Everything that he said is something that these QAnon people believe. The thing about the DC, whatever, 18th century thing, and the incorporated that. It's, it's, it's batshit insane, and they believe it. Kim Kardashian part is not true. Uh, that part is not true. And I, I don't know that they really listen to uh, Scott Bayo, but maybe they do. I don't know. The fact is, these Q people really believe stuff that's just, it's insane. It's just, you know, how much longer are they going to push the inauguration? It didn't happen on Election Day. It didn't happen after Election Day. It didn't happen on January 6th. It's, you know, spoiler alert, ain't going to happen on March the 4th. Are they going to just keep pushing it along? Is it going to be the 4th of July the next time? Because that's when that's when we'll declare our independence from the illegitimate government of Biden. I mean, it makes no sense at all. It's just completely crazy. And it'll be interesting to see if the media can report this accurately or what they're starting to there are signs and again it's weird to talk about the media because there are so many great reporters and the media did so much great work in uh the trump years it really did there were so many stories that were broken that were super important and yet when you look at it holistically it was just a just an epic fail big media fail the fourth estate crapped the bed as i wrote in dirty rubles why did this happen I wrote an article, I don't know, last year at some point for Prevail about the various media failures. I threw out about a dozen reasons why the media failed. I'm going to throw them at Eric 
and he's going to reply. So this is a really, I think, fun exchange, which we're going to get to right now. All right, I've got Eric Bollert here today. He is the author of Press Run, which he does on Substack. How, how often do you publish it? Usually three times a week. That's what I thought. Week, at least three times a week. You're you're pretty you're pretty consistent. I'm consistent, but you're. I think you do it even more than I do. It's it's very <laughs> impressive. Press Run is a is a Substack. I would I would call you a media critic. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the first thing that I want to ask is, how did you get involved with this? What's your background? Why? Did, when did you start writing the site, and why? Let's start with that. Yeah, it's, uh, I started um, just about a year ago, February of 2020. Why did it? Well, uh, a quick background. Like um, my previous life, I wrote about the music industry. I, I worked at uh, Billboard. I worked at Rolling Stone, um, and then I went to Salon. Right. A little million years ago, right in time for the 2000 election and the recount. And at Salon, I started writing a little bit more about politics and media, which was really my my real love. Um, and then um, wrote a couple books. Uh, and then I ended up at Media Matters for about a decade and did a ton of work there. You know, uh, misinformation from the left, trying to hold uh, Fox News accountable, but also trying to hold the New York Times accountable and the Washington Post and things like that. Um, so that's really where I kind of got this whole worldview that I that I share now. Uh, after that, real quick, I was at Daily Coast for a year uh, and writing about three times a week. And then I was looking at, um, actually, the year I went to Daily Coast, I was looking at the Substack in the newsletter, and, and it certainly got my attention just from an economic standpoint because the world of journalism is shrinking, uh, and Google and Facebook basically own every online ad there is, uh, so the options become thinner and thinner. But uh, happily, I, I made the jump about a year ago. I feel like I got in early, even though I did, but based on what happened uh, in the last 12 months with so many more people. I know. It's been, even the last month, it's been oh, I crazy. Know, I know. Like really big names. and Yeah. You know. And uh, there's a reason people are doing it. It's pretty fantastic. Um, I'm, I've always been my own editor, even in Media Matters. I was there 10 years. I, I probably created 97% of the column, the ideas that I wrote, I came up with basically all the headlines, Daily Coast, same thing. So I had been kind of a self-generating kind of um, uh, a silo. I did my own thing. So the newsletter made perfect sense. I really like the idea of um, connecting directly with readers. That's probably been the most interesting and fun part, the creating a community. Uh, and, and, and it just keeps growing and growing and been kind of successful beyond my wildest imagination in terms of the number of people who are reading it. So it's, it's been a great thing and it's been a godsend for, for writers and journalists who, who oh, yeah, no. an option, I think. I agree. Just another shout out, you know, it's called press run. That's the name of the Substack. It's two to three times a week. And Eric does a really good job just um, exposing stuff and, and calling out publications when they do a bad job. Usually yeah, it's right wing, but sometimes yeah. it's, it's, you know, we're going to get to that. It's not just the conservative media. No, no. And yeah, just real quick. I mean, that's kind of what I've been doing for years. I think I've kind of known as a straight shooter and, and calling people out. Um, I've never been part of the DC media or the Beltway media. I tell people, you know, 20 years ago when I realized that I, I didn't want to and wasn't going to ever work for the New York Times, it's such a liberating, because <laughs> most writers hang on to that idea the whole, their whole life, or the basic, you know, you don't want to burn bridges, you don't want to offend people. But once you, once you have that freedom, 
you know, I, I'm certainly not shy about calling people out and, and, and trying to hold people accountable. And we'll talk about all the ways that the press failed in such gargantuan fashion uh, covering Trump. I mean, I think there's, in some ways now, there's almost a misunderstanding for what the role of the press is supposed to be, yeah. which, is, which is that, you know, journalists are supposed to be objective. They're not supposed to be opinion makers. Now, it may happen that uh, certainly in the Trump era, that Trump was way worse than anything else going. But in the old days, real diehard journalists didn't even vote because they didn't want to okay. appear impartial. You know, right. it was really like a, they took they took it very, very seriously. I'm sure a lot of them still do. But before we get into this, I want to say, you know, not all mo- mo- many journalists, if not most, are very good. Yes, There's yes, a yes. lot of really, really good journalism that happened in the last four years. I wrote my book about the Trump Russia stuff. Yeah. And in May of 2018, you know, most of what I everything that I knew was from the press. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like I had sources. And right, when the right. Mueller report came out, it was all the same. The press knew everything. They figured out all this stuff. They it did. You know, and it's funny. Yeah, and it's, and it's a good point because, you know, I, I, especially on Twitter, I beat up on the New York Times a lot. Uh, but the New York Times, minus the, minus the D.C. Bureau, is an amazing thing. You know, the sports and the arts and the culture and the metro and the business, great, great stuff. Uh, they just have this problem in the D.C. Bureau. It's been a cultural problem for 20, 30 years. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I am very critical of the coverage of Trump. Uh, for the last, you know, for the previous five years, but there was also great stuff that was done, and, and you know, we need to acknowledge it. Which makes it confusing and, and so it does. effective it when, when, does. when Trump was criticizing the media and saying, you know, the New York Times is bet whatever. He wasn't wrong in some cases, you know, and that that made it hard because for for uh, a media critic to then criticize the media. I know, and, and and another quick point, you know, fake news, fake news, enemy of the people. No, you know, obviously, you and I are going to stand up at the front of that line and say this is this is this is dangerous, this is authoritarian, this is not how a free democracy works. So I defend the I defend the New York Times from Trump, and then I turn around and I criticize it. It does get confusing. It does get confusing, uh, and I think honestly, the Beltway Press tries to use that to their advantage uh, because they say, hey, in New York Times specifically, hey, he. Trump hates us. He hates us. He tweets about us all the time. That means we're doing a great job. And if you're kind of a casual observer, that logic, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, why would Trump hate the Washington Post if the, you know, if the Washington Post was being too timid with him? So he uses it to his advantage. And they, in turn, use those that, you know, they use those attacks as proof that we're doing a fantastic job. Right. Right. It's a this vicious circle of, of horror. Um, and just so you know, my background, I am yeah. not, I am not a journalist. I, right. I, I play one on TV. <laughs> I, Very well. Um, I worked at, I worked at the Associated Press for seven and a half years. I worked in human resources. Right, right. I was a recruiter. So I've been around journalists and I've, I know what to look for when hiring journalists. I've sat right. in a lot of news meetings. I, I get, I was the main person at the new employee orientations for AP, so I'm very familiar with the history of the company, and of course, for the last you know four years, I've been reporting. Absolutely. Some of what I've written has approached journalism, <laughs> although I mean I consider myself more of a columnist, like a like an op-ed kind of thing, sure. um, you know, with journalism in there. So that's that's my uh, my thing. But I I, I want to get get clear that I don't claim to be uh, right, right, right. Woodward and Bernstein here, but. With that said, okay, yeah. so we're going to talk about why the media failed in 2016 and why it continues to fail now. And I wrote a piece for, for my uh, my Prevail column 
a while ago uh, that I think wasn't wasn't read very much. Maybe it shouldn't have been. It was very long and kind of uh, this is a better conversation than a piece. <laughs> so I'm going to throw some. There, there's a whole bunch of reasons why yeah. I think the media failed. It isn't as simple as, oh, you know, Trump's got it in his pocket or this or that. It, there's a lot of personalities. There's a lot of dynamics corporate dynamics there's yep. push and pull between editor and publisher that most people you know don't really understand because they haven't been in that you know in the newsrooms to see how that works and how it's supposed to work right right so uh anyway let's go through this is specifically about you know the trump stuff but we can expand it to include whatever so yeah. the first reason uh is what i call fire hose which is that when trump was around my god so much quote unquote news was generated right. Right. How do you possibly, uh, you know, keep track of it all? Yeah, that, that look, this, this, this is kind of the Trump chaos agent theory. It worked well for him in, in New York City for decades. Uh, it worked well for him on the campaign trail. I mean, remember, you go back uh, summer of 2015, he was on some panel and he made that comment about John McCain. You know, I like my war heroes who don't get captured. And I remember I was I was in front of my computer like every other time when it happened and it uh, live and re journalists were just falling over. They, they said, that's it. It's over. Uh, you know, I think Jonathan <laughs> Martin of the New York times was one of them. How could he possibly recover? They didn't realize it was going to be like that every day for the next five years. So they, you know, the, the fire hose is a perfect description. They never really faced a politician who not only a welcome controversy, and, and 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 made shocking statements that he would never back down or apologize for, but he would make them every day, sometimes six times a day. So yeah. the press didn't really know how to deal with this. If someone, if a politician had said something like, I like my war heroes or don't get captured, that would be the story for seven days. That politician would not say anything or probably appear in public for a week. There would be so much damage control and then the stories would uh, revolve around that damage control and what's the path forward and how can he do this? He didn't care. Trump didn't care. He was never going to apologize. There was no damage control. And he just plowed ahead. And within three days, uh, if we go back to the summer of 2015, there were probably four more controversies. So least, they yeah. didn't have the bandwidth. They didn't have, they had never faced anything like this. They had never faced um, a politician who didn't care uh, about saying kind of hateful, awful things. Uh, and then by the time we got into the primary and the debates, he, he was he was doing this on a daily basis. Uh, and then obviously when he got to the White House, right? <laughs> you know, the, the you know the travel the Muslim travel ban was in a couple weeks. Uh, that for most administrations, that would have been the controversy for the next until the spring, right? All the news would have revolved around that. What's yeah. the congressional implications, the hearings, the legal? You know, within four days, we were on to five other things. Um, so it works well for Trump. Uh, I think he was unique in terms of his ability to put to pull it off because he is such a uniquely shameless individual uh, and, and, and a narcissist and a pathological liar. He was kind of this unique monster that could pull it off monster personality wise. Uh, and, and the press, um, you know, I, I think. I think they also got wrapped up, and we can talk about this in other ways, but just wrapped up in all the attention. I mean, yeah, people talked about point. this, is the, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, they claimed their ratings were through the roof. They really weren't. We can talk about that, too. I mean, cable news ratings were up marginally over his four years. 
Uh, but there, there certainly was this feeling that they were the center of the universe and the center of attention. And I think most news consumers, most voters certainly consumed way more news during the Trump years. So I think it kind of fed into this new rhythm, like every day, every hour, we're just going to churn through this outrage, outrage. Uh, and, and it worked to his advantage. Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned that the timing of it and how things fell out of the news so fast. There was the, the, the thing about his medical when it was the doctor wrote that letter and then it turns out that, you know, the, so the, it's Trump's hitmen went in and like grabbed the files and kind of roughed the guy up. That story, okay, on the West Wing, there is a two season arc plot arc <laughs> because Jed Bartlett has MS and doesn't disclose it. Two seasons right. this goes right. on, hovering right. in the back. What are we gonna do? Should we have disclosed it? Should we have not? The right. Trump story it was gone in an afternoon, never yeah. to be heard from again. We still don't know why he went to Walter Reed. Nothing. It's 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 crazy. Yeah, um, and and, it, and 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 the reason there was that two season arc for West Wing is because they were living off the Clinton era, yeah. and when Clinton, you know, didn't go to Vietnam, based on you know a, a note. Obviously, Trump never went to Vietnam because he got this fake, you know, footnote. Uh, you well, know, studio Clinton, Studio Fifty Four was his Vietnam, you know. Yeah, exactly, and and so, but uh, for the Clinton era, you know, not going to Vietnam was a two year story, uh, and 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 for Trump, to your point, you know, it was probably a four day story, and he paid off some doctor to write some some bullshit note. Like we all knew that's why he didn't go to Vietnam. I mean, there was no reason. So yeah, I mean, it just. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, him sending the guys to rough up the doctor. I, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, mean, no, no, there, that's, there, there's things, there are people that did right. horrible, horrible things. That were like, yeah. All right, I forgot about that, you know. Right, and, uh, so, and, and, and so back to the, the point, I mean, the press, the Beltway press just isn't, isn't, it's not set up. It's still not set up. Someone could still uh, pull that off again because they're just not, uh, they're not used to dealing with a pathological liar. They're not. De used to dealing with politicians who are so invested in disinformation and misinformation and propaganda. Uh, they're used to people who do that on the margins and it's called spin. Uh, what Trump was doing was not spin. He was creating, he was creating an alternate universe. Yeah, no, he, he really was. Um, okay. So something that you talked about a little bit before is my next reason why the media uh, failed, which is clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. It's a clickbait. So, Eyeballs, traffic, ratings, this stuff all brings money into the pockets of these people. It was, what was it, Les Moonves of uh, yeah. CBS News. Trump may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Why invest money in good journalism when you can write some stupid listicle crap and get the same number of clicks, right? Yeah, and and, uh, and and you know, I think they played off the anxiety and and the fear, the deep-seated and legitimate fear that a lot of people had, and particularly a lot of Democrats and liberals. And and so, uh, look, I mean, it, it's 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 complicated because again, you know, cable ratings. I mean, CNN's ratings didn't double during the Trump years. Uh, yeah. I think a lot more people were sampling. I think a lot more people were watching. Uh, but in and of itself. Uh, the, you know, the ad rates didn't double during the Trump years and, and they were up marginally. But back to my other point, news certainly became the center of the universe uh, and, and everyone felt it. And everyone covering Trump understood that this was unlike anything in a modern American history. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, CNN, when he was a when he was a candidate, going back to the Les Moonves quote from 2016, 
you know, they famously cut away from Hillary Clinton giving a speech to show an empty uh, Donald Trump podium because they could miss a second when he showed up and, and, and that was going to be news. Look, um, you know, it became it certainly became entertainment. Uh, you know, the first week that Trump was president, suddenly all the cable channels were airing White House press briefings every minute live in its entirety. Yeah, that had never happened before in U.S. history. You know, Media Matters looked back the last six months of Obama's administration. Cable news channels covered two percent of their daily press briefings. Uh, this, you know, this, this isn't when Obama or Trump showed up. These are just, you know, the White House spokesperson taking questions for 45 minutes. Some reason when Trump became president, it was news. It was news not uh, that, you know, not only did they have to cover and air and report on every sentence he ever said, but his, his spokesperson. So that became four or five hours of programming every week. Um, there was never any explanation for why the Trump White House press briefings had to be covered live in their entirety every day uh, as, as long as they had them. I mean, they didn't have them for a year and then they came back. Same with the Trump uh, pandemic briefings. Uh, there became a major concern that he was killing people, literally, by telling yeah. them to inject bleach into their arms. There was a lot of uproar about why are we covering this live? And, and, and their take was, it's Trump. It's got to be news. We have to cover every word, every sentence. And I think, I don't think that to your point, in terms of clickbait, I don't think that was because they thought everything he said was news. I think they thought everything he said was entertaining. And so here, here just real quick, here's the cycle. There would be a daily press briefing, maybe and they weren't even very long, actually, 20 or 30, 40 minutes. You know, whoever the press person was would lie. Uh, they would occasionally insult the reporters. Uh, the press briefing would end. And then people on the panel would talk about how they lied. And it was just kind of this, you know, outrage cycle rather than just unplugging the thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point you just say, well, this isn't really news. It's not helpful for our conversation. We're going to invest our money in, we're going to spend our time reporting on things. So I think the reason they covered all the press, press briefings uh, every minute live was because it fell under the umbrella of entertainment. It's free content. They certainly didn't do it for Obama. So we know that there was a different standard for Trump. Right. And I think that all kind of falls under, um, into the category of clickbait absolutely yeah yeah no it's a good point about the the press briefings because that's it's easy to make that it's just you just show the thing and then you talk yeah. about it couldn't be yeah. couldn't be easier couldn't be easier okay next next reason this what this one i think is is under under uh reported upon yeah i call it siloization uh, so the way that newspapers in particular but you know uh broadcast journalism also tends to be structured Reporters work in beats. So right. you have somebody covering business, you have somebody covering sports, you have somebody covering national security, what have you. And the Trump story, especially the, the Trump-Russia stuff, right. all right. of it is right. so big and so overarching right. that, okay, they did. the media did do a good job saying Paul Manafort did X. Right. Um, Do Donald Trump Jr. is getting divorced. That was in page six of the New York Post. Um, you know, there, there's little nuggets that you right. got from all the various places in the newspaper, but what we didn't have, what we have never had in journalism. Right. Yeah, I remember being frustrated about this when I was in high school is context and nuance. There's it's, everybody assumes that, you know, what's going on up until that point. It's like, you've turned on the soap opera right. and they just assume that some baseline of knowledge when right. there is, there needs to be a generalist that sort of reports on all this stuff and, and explains the context of it. Right. Yeah. 
and I think that's especially true of the Russia stuff and the Mueller stuff. Uh, it became, it, it defined everything that Trump did for so long. Uh, but the press wanted to have, as you say, that, that Mueller beat, that, that Russia beat. But that explains his foreign policy. That explains his domestic policy. That explains a lot of how he deals with the rest of the Republican Party. That explains, um, you know, his, prop, his, his tendency for propaganda and misinformation. It explains his autocratic tendencies. I mean, it's, it's kind of this defining worldview for him. But, yeah, let's have people just cover the Mueller report. Let's just have people cover, you know, the dossier. Let's just have people cover, uh, you know, when he talks to Putin and things like that. They weren't real good, as you say, in, in providing a worldview. They weren't real good at just uh, explaining who Trump was, which it sounds incredible because the mountain of coverage that he received. Uh, but they weren't real good explaining he's, his really deformed personality in terms of being unstable, in terms of being a pathological liar uh, and things like that. And so you're right. I think they try to chop it in, chop it up to, you know, uh, th this is how Trump deals with politics. This is how Trump deals with race. This is how Trump deals with Russia. Uh, but unlike any other president, you can't really you can't really put him in silos, as you said. Yeah, it was all encompassing because it was all part of this criminal enterprise. that <laughs> yes. He ran out of the Absolutely. White House. Yeah. And and the Beltway Press isn't used to covering politics as a criminal enterprise. Uh, and so, oh, yes, let, let's have a corruption beat. Oh, yes, let's have, you know, a business dealings beat. It was all one weird, awful thing. Uh, and, and I don't think the press ever really got its arms around it or maybe didn't really want to get its arms around mm. it and didn't really want to present an accurate picture because it was so shocking and so radical uh, that maybe the preferred approach was little bits here and there, here and there, here and there. Yeah, you know, I, I I think maybe it's a combination of both. I mean, certainly papers tried. I mean, da the Washington yeah. Post put David Fahrenthold and, and just turned him loose on the taxes and all that stuff, right. which was great. And God bless that guy. But you know, uh, remember that the Times used to have a guy named R. W. Apple who would write these kind of that's right, that's right. You know, overarching columns. There, right, there isn't right. somebody like that anymore. I feel like this is a way that Trump maybe. I don't think he did this intentionally, almost no, right. inadvertently took advantage of the of the way that newspapers are structured and always have been structured to kind of skirt the bigger picture. Yeah, and I think he took advantage of, of the generational brain drain that has happened at so many news organizations. You, you know, you talk about the R.W. Apple and people like that. Uh, they don't really exist anymore. Uh, in a lot of these newsrooms, there have been so many buyout packages over the years at so many news organizations. They, they lack the institutional memory. Uh, and so in a weird way, not that he planned it, uh, I think that helped Trump. That's interesting. And, and that's a good point, too, the, the, the change of the newsroom. We'll get to that in a second also, because the next, the next one on my list is called Groupthink. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, I worked at Associated Press. I went to the, the news meetings, which is a bunch of editors sitting around a table talking about what the big stories are of the day. Then right. they put out the... Um, you know, the wire and right. the member newspapers look at that and that's how they determine what's going to be on the front page of their papers, right. which is why the front page of the paper in um, northern New Jersey is almost the same as the one in Seattle is almost right, the same right, as the right. one in, in Indiana. Right. I know, you know, that. I'm saying it for the people out there. It, yeah, this yeah, is a yeah, behind yeah. the scenes thing. It, Associated Press is a not for profit cooperative owned by all of those papers, all of the member right. newspapers. So it's almost set up to be objective. But 
within the newsroom, I remember I was there during the Elian Gonzalez saga. Oh, wow. And it wasn't, I remember thinking, why is this even a big deal? Yeah. Why, does anybody, I mean, you know, first of all, the, 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 the dad's dead, the mom, whatever it was, give them back to the parent. Like that's right. where the kids should go, A. And right. B, why does this matter so much? But I think there was so much Cuba that it was always assumed that that was going to be an important thing. And even though it really wasn't by 1990, whatever, eight, uh, in the way that it was in 1968 or 78 even, there was still this kind of slow-moving monolith of groupthink. And penetrating that was difficult. When Kurt Cobain died, somebody in Seattle had to beg the person on the general desk to put it on the A-wire because the editor of the general desk had never right. heard of Kurt Cobain, didn't know what Nirvana was. And in Seattle, they were like, no, no, please, trust me, you must have this on the thing. So I think it works both ways. You need to have <laughs> institutional memory, but you also need to have, uh, you know, people that are living in the, in the times and not uh, 40 years ago. And again, I don't mind, I'm not bashing AP there. I think AP is, is terrific and I love them. So I don't want to give that impression if I have. Okay, we're talking with Eric Bollert. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Four Sticks Press, publisher of Dirty Rubles, an introduction to Trump Russia by Greg Oliar. Salon calls Dirty Rubles essential reading for all Americans. For a limited time, Dirty Rubles is available for the special price of $5.49. That's $5.49 on Amazon.com. This episode is also brought to you by Prevail, Greg Oliar's Substack, with new columns every Tuesday and Friday and a literary Sunday pages every weekend. Prevail is your place for in-depth reporting. Subscribe at gregoliar.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. And now, back to the program. Okay, we're back with Eric Bowler. He, is, uh, he runs Press Run which is on a Substack, like Prevail is on Substack. Two to three times a week, he's banging out these columns. He's a media critic, and I, I encourage everybody to read what he's writing and sign up and subscribe. Okay, next on my list of reasons why the media... I told you, this is a big, long list. Inertia. <laughs> Inertia. Oh, wow. Right? Maybe you're in, a, in one of these newsroom meetings, and you have a story, you know, that you're thinking of, but you're just... You know that it's not going to get anywhere because of the way these things tend to be, you know? I mean, we think about Watergate. That's almost still the gold standard of young, up-and-coming journalists knocking down the thing. But in order for Watergate to happen, you had to have Woodward and Bernstein, who were really good. You had to have their editor above them, who let them do what they were doing and supported them. You had to have Ben Bradley, who stood by them when maybe nine out of ten other editors wouldn't have. And you had to have Kay Graham willing to just spend the money and do whatever it took. I mean, that's right. a lot of pieces that had to be just right. It wasn't just Woodward and Bernstein. So, I don't know. Inertia, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think uh, just if you look at the Watergate example, there's only two or three organizations today that could even undertake something like that. Again, you know, there's been such uh, uh, cutbacks from news organizations. The idea you're going to put some reporters and maybe an editor on a story that's not going to run for a week, uh, that, that's, that just doesn't exist. I mean, these poor reporters who working at Metro newspapers across the country. I mean, some of them are doing two or three stories a day. I mean, on, on a local level and things like that. But I think, I think in, you know, uh, we talked about how the, the Trump fire hose and this nonstop information, I think it played to his advantage because again, if you're during the Trump era, you know there's going to be news every six hours 
as opposed to every six days, you know, some sort of controversy, it certainly uh, makes it less appealing to kind of carve out some time to do two, three or four day stories. And most newsrooms just don't have those resources anymore. Uh, and so inertia, I think that's a good point. And, and, and for Trump, it was the opposite of inertia, right? It was just nonstop news, nonstop yeah. news, nonstop news. So what, what, what really becomes important is the press just gets stuck in reactive mode, reaction. You just react, 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 react. Right. For the first year, it was running to Republicans and saying, oh, my God, what did you think of Trump? After a year, Republicans stopped, had no response. So the press didn't even bother running to Republicans and say, oh, my gosh, what did you think of the racist thing uh, Trump just tweeted? So it, they were stuck in reaction mode. But the reaction mode was really just reproducing his tweets. Right. Uh, you know, there wasn't really much response. There wasn't really much, you know, context to it. It was just, you know, how many headlines did we see about, you know, what Trump tweeted? I mean, that that was kind of the news cycle. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that in a weird way, the fire hose plus the inertia, it was kind of this weird combination. Uh, you know, everyone just rode this wave that he created on his own nonstop news. And so there was no need to kind of get off the beaten track and spend a few days doing something else. And there was no desire because if you were off the yeah. track for a couple of days doing something else, you're going to miss, you know, what was considered for a lot of people this fun ride. So again, you know, Trump being so shameless uh, was able to change the rhythms of the newsroom. And one of the, yeah, I think you're right. One of the ways he changed it was there was no advantage. There was no incentive at 99 out of 100 news organizations to do something industrious and, and do something um, uh, that would take a, uh, would take a long time because he's producing, the, you know, he's producing this new these news rhythms uh, two or three times a day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I remember when I wrote my book. In 2018, it was hard because you had to you had oh to find a, you had to find a breaking point and say, okay, oh, well, yeah. so I'm going to stop now, right. go back and try to. It, it's it's hard. It's it's still hard because there's still you know with the insurrection and the the insurrection. It just occurs to me that's almost a uh, a metaphor for for the newsrooms. You know, the the people cr bursting through and inadequate uh, police there, ill equipped, right. or like the journalists being right. bombarded by this by this terrible uh, you know uh, fire hose. This uh, uh, of shit, you know, in Bannon's term. Um, so that, that kind of brings us to the next one, which I call both sides now, which is uh, the media's insistence to just always both sides the issue. And I forget, I, I can't remember who said this, but yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the journalist's job is not, you know, if, if person A says it's raining and person B says it's sunny, the job of the journalist is not to quote them. The job of the journalist is to find out if it's fucking wet. Right. right? So, Open the window. Yeah. Oh my God! Like what? You know, what are your thoughts yeah. on both the both sidesism stuff? Well, this was kind of the escape trap, right? And and so one of the main failures of the press during the Trump years was refusing to tell the truth about him and the Republican Party and just how dangerous and radical it has become. Yes, uh, that really got an exclamation point during right during the run up to the res uh, insurrection. When we had what 140 me Republican members of the House petitioning the Supreme Court to basically throw out 20 million votes, yeah, uh, because they didn't like the way those people voted. Uh, the, Re the Republican Party this winter made it clear that they do not support free and fair elections in this country. Trump obviously does not. He did everything in his power 
to overthrow an election. That shouldn't have come as a surprise, but it probably came as a surprise to news consumers because for the last four years, you know, the Beltway Press just would not uh, attach the, the, the phrase, uh, you know, authoritarian to Trump or the Republican Party. So what, instead, what they did the opposite. So instead, what they did was they adopted this kind of both sides approach. And, and so controversies were usually, you know, uh, presented in the context of, of Democrats are probably just as bad or, or, you know, or maybe kind of a he said, she said. Uh, and, and instead of just being brutally honest uh, about what the conservative movement has become, which is, is an absolutely dangerous extremist movement, the, the once mainstream conservative movement in this country has gone so far off the rails. Uh, but the prism the Beltway Press wants to use is center right versus center left. You know, a lot of the times you would read the coverage of Trump, you would think John McCain were president or Mitt Romney yeah. were president. You know, you, it's so often lack the context of we are in an unprecedented time. And, and again, it became obvious between November to January that Trump really saw himself as a dictator and was going to do everything in his power to make sure he stayed in power. But from, you know, 2017 to 2020, that wasn't the vibe you got from, from reading everyday news coverage of Trump. Oh, he was eccentric. Oh, he was a bit of a bully. He's kind of rough around the edges. Uh, but for the, the, for the press, it was so important to, to, to continue to cover the Republican party as a mainstream party, because once they, once you acknowledge they're not a mainstream party, once you acknowledge they're not in favor of free and fair elections in this country, then what do you do? Once you open that Pandora's box, you can't, you can't put the top back on. You have just acknowledged reality and you have just acknowledged that one party deals with good faith facts. You might not agree with them. Uh, yes, there's some spin on the Democratic side. One side is 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 basically becoming a, a rogue authoritarian outlet uh, that doesn't really um, doesn't really adhere to uh, the law. And so then that becomes a totally different story in terms of American politics. Uh, and that's the story the press doesn't want to cover. That's why they refused to cut, call Trump a liar for four years, because once you acknowledge the president of the United States is a pathological liar, that kind of has to be your story every day for the rest of his administration. Yeah. Uh, but if you never acknowledge it, well, you can say he traffics in falsehoods and propaganda, and you can kind of dance around it. Uh, so the both sides was a very, uh, like I said, it's, it, was, it was a really important escape hatch as a way to frame what was happening and not to be honestly, to be honest about what was happening. Now, you said, uh, you know, Trump is an authoritarian. He's also, the movement around him in the GOP is also very much, I think, a white supremacist movement. And that brings us to another one of my uh, reasons why the media failed, which is lack yeah. of diversity. Lack of diversity in the newsrooms, lack of yeah. diversity among the owners of the media companies who are almost all white men. Yeah. Um, lack of diversity in the people that are writing the op-eds in the New York Times, which I think that the, the whole op-ed operation in the New York Times is horrible and needs to be completely overhauled. In my, I, just, I, I don't understand why some of these people still have jobs. <laughs> There's so many better people uh, yeah, yeah. writing, and, uh, and so many of them are white guys um, yeah. trying to you know, f figure out what, what's going on. So, so we're two white guys. What do we think about <laughs> the lack of diversity in newsrooms? <laughs> 
Oh, I mean, I, you know, I think I, I've been writing about that for a, a long time, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think it became it came to the forefront uh, during the Trump years. And, and you know, I just talked about how they wouldn't call him a you know a, a liar, and they won't call him mentally unstable. They also wouldn't call him a racist. Um, yeah. You know, they danced around that. They burned through their thesaurus coming up. You know, racially tinged, race baiting. You know, uh, um, uh, white. Um, um, you know, basically self pitying with white. Um, and I think we saw one of the re one of the real outcomes of the lack of diversity was this obsession with covering Trump voters for four years, right? Sending reporters out to uh, diners in Ohio and Wisconsin oh, to God. interview white middle-aged men. White middle-aged men became the most important voting bloc in America uh, for four years, um, which, is, which is crazy because white middle-aged men in Wisconsin and Ohio aren't even swing voters. They're, yeah. They are in the pocket for the Republican Party. They're, they're, they're not even on the table. So why, if you're in, the, you're in the business of political journalism, why do you focus on these people obsessively for four years and whitewash all the white supremacy that drives these people to the point where, you know, the press was as caught off guard on January 6th as was the Washington, D.C. police because they had just spent four years glorifying white Republican voters. They were just hardworking folk, right? The, the, you know, New York Times probably ran 150 stories, Trump voter stories in four years. Probably not two of them ever hinted at the racism that was driving this movement, never hinted uh, at the dark undercurrents. Uh, and I think a lot of that is lack of diversity. I pointed out, you know, uh, the Times did an internal uh, survey 96% of the people who covered the 2016 campaign for the New York Times were white or, or not people of color. Uh, and, and, you know, I think they improved that a little bit. But if you cover Trump and everyone covers Trump from a, uh, from a white perspective, you're not going to get the Trump story. You're just not. Uh, you're going to miss a crucial element. And you're going to waste the next four years hanging out with Trump voters uh, in Ohio and Minnesota and pretending they are America. They, that Iowa is not America. It's just not. It's not even close. You know, forty-eight uh, percent of the of America. I think this statistic now is is people of color. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a lack of diversity, and I think it played into Trump's advantage. Uh, I think the press felt like they missed the Trump victory story in 2016, so they bent over backwards for four years, glorifying uh, uh, you know his support and his base. And then it, you know, and they completely missed the story because what they were covering was an insurrectionist movement, but they missed the story because, gee, they look just, you know, these people just look like you and me and our parents. So they must be, you know, there, there's no, there's nothing nefarious going on. They're just, they're just hardworking folk who found a voice in Donald Trump. That was the vibe for four years. And I think absolutely, um, if, if you lack diversity in your newsroom, you're going to miss a big story. Would you rather hang out in a diner with white middle-aged Trump voters or in a hipster coffee shop in LA with Jacob Walt? Now that's, that's, that's a rhetorical question because the answer is not it. Um, okay. Here's another, here's another uh, reason why the media fails. Incompetence. Some of the, a lot of the reporters are really great. Some of them are just bad. Chris Aliza sucks. I'm just going to say it. He's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, and a lot of people have failed their way up. You know, journalism isn't unique in that regard. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, lots of 
white men have failed their way up through lots of industries. Uh, so journalism uh, isn't unique. Uh, it just becomes more obvious because all your your work is displayed every day. Uh, and look, you know, you mentioned crystallism and whatever, but you know, there's always been a sweet spot in, in the Beltway Press for people who say completely unoriginal things, uh, and they say them often, and and that's probably half of the punditry in this in, in this country. Um, it's just you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. I mean, I've been you know when I was in Media Matters, and uh, I mean I've been doing this a long time, thousands. I don't even know how many bylines. Uh, and I think in like 15 years, like I've had an idea and three times someone else wrote it before I did. <laughs> you would think it would happen all the time, right? Yeah. And maybe not exactly from a media perspective, but like someone in the Beltway Press, like, you know, I, I, sometimes I just write out straight up, straight up politics stuff. I did a piece last week at Press Run about how, co you know, COVID relief is 70% support among Republican voters. And the Republican Party, the entire Republican Party is going to vote no against it. And that's going to be a really big political problem for the Republican Party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a story that's just sitting in plain sight. But the entire Beltway Press is obsessed with the COVID story. It's going to be a problem for Democrats. It's going to be a problem for Biden. He's not going to have unity. He's only going to have Democratic votes. 83% of the country supports that bill. How is it going to be a problem for the Democratic Party? But that goes to your point of incompetence and groupthink. If everyone is trained to wake up every day uh, and assume Republicans are super savvy and Democrats are in a state of disarray, you're going to miss some obvious stories like the COVID relief bill. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of great people. There are a lot of great writers, but there's also a large chunk of people just like, ugh, you know, stating the obvious and not doing it very well and, and getting paid really well to do it. I know it's infuriating. That was a really great, uh, I think it was a couple of, of pieces that you wrote at, at Press Run about how Biden is actually popular and his policies are super popular and nobody seems to want to ignite. It's always, yeah. you know, the Dems are forever in disarray. We're always in yeah. disarray. Uh, right. And the Republicans are always in lockstep like the... Um, you know, the stormtroopers of death that they are. Oh, yeah. Uh, look, look, Republicans are always super savvy. They're always two, two or three steps ahead of Democrats. But again, I go to this COVID relief bill, and this is why it's so important. You know, during the Obama years, they obstructed everything. Uh, but McConnell basically saved them because they didn't have to vote. You know, yeah, yeah. now when Democrats lost those two Senate races, you know, they. this is going to be such an extraordinary vote. Uh, they are going to have to go on the record on COVID relief, and we are going to probably have 50 Republican senators vote no. Maybe a dozen won't vote no in the House. I don't know. 90, 95 percent of the Republican caucus is going to vote no on a bill that has 83 percent public approval. And that's never happened in the, in the past because really popular stuff was usually like, like gun laws uh, during the Obama years. McConnell kept them off the floor, so they never had to be accountable. This is going to be astonishing. But for the last month, you know, the press coverage was, you know, COVID relief is, you know, this might be a problem for Democrats. How is it a problem for Democrats? We're going to start sending out checks to tens of millions of people. 60, 70 percent of Republicans approve this bill. But it's it's the group thing. You know, it's that group thing. Well, if Republicans don't like this bill, you know, it's, it's a problem for Democrats. It, it, it's not. I mean, you know, Biden and Democrats have completely outmaneuvered Republicans. They could have passed this bill 
any time while Trump was president. Trump White House was telling Mitch McConnell last August that the pandemic was going to be over in September. <laughs> COVID bill might have actually saved Trump's presidency, his reelection run. Uh, there's absolutely yeah, a true. chance uh, he would have been reelected if Republicans had gotten behind behind a huge COVID relief bill, and they had made a big deal about it, but they they oppose it. But anyway, it, it, it's, it's going to be costly. But And yet, you know, the press still looks at it and says, oh, boy, this could be a problem for Democrats. So it's, it's a classic example of, of this group mindset uh, of just assuming, you know, re- Republicans are, are, you know, are super savvy and have got this all figured out. We're, we're just in disarray. We're in disarray. I'm in disarray. You're in disarray. <laughs> um, all right. There's a few more left. We'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll go through them quickly here. Uh, one is conflict of interest. There's okay. so many times when somebody appears on one of the news shows and they're a foreign, you know, they're, they're a foreign agent that is, has signed the foreign thing, but it's not disclosed. In the, uh, maybe they read an op-ed, maybe they do this or that. Michael Cohen, when he was on the Sean Hannity show a bunch of times, he, he's Sean Hannity's lawyer. Right. You're supposed to tell us that, man. Oh, right, 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 right. You know? So that's what I mean by conflicts of interest. Like they're not, they're, the people that they oh, bring yeah. on aren't being presented as uh, who they really are. Well, and, and I think that was especially true with Trump because there was such, there was such an octopus of, uh, of uh, you know, again, we talk about this criminal enterprise. I mean, he had so many tentacles out in so many places. And frankly, re, you know, cable news was desperate to get borderline coherent people on who would defend Trump it became a real problem that they couldn't really find people to go on TV who they felt comfortable would not, you know, become completely unhinged after 90 seconds. And Michael Cohen was very good on TV. So, okay, let's have him on. Oh, okay. Uh, All these conflicts. Okay. We don't have time for the conflicts. We finally got someone who can string together coherent sentences uh, and defend Trump and, 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 and won't come across as a nut job. So I think, you know, the conflicts of interest kind of took a back seat because they had so few people they felt comfortable they could put on. I mean, obviously, Fox News, they didn't care about anything. Uh, and, 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 you know, conflicts of interest were fine there. But, yeah, I, and again, we've talked about this, but there was so many unique ways that Trump was different. And, and I think uh, the, the, uh, just the huge amount of conflicts, it was impossible for the press to keep track and after a while, I think they just didn't even care. I'm going to I'm going to open a bottle of wine right now and pour one out for Jeffrey Lord. Remember that guy? He he was always the staunchest Trump defender yeah, on yeah. CNN until until he wasn't anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe we're seeing some of these people go. Uh, I got two more. OK, uh, one is blurred lines. So we talked about this way back at the, at the beginning. And I'm just I know, you know, yeah. this, but I'm going to say this for people listening. Newsrooms sure. should be. The way that it is supposed to be set up is that the publisher, who is some, the person that owns the paper or the entity, is supposed to be absolutely disconnected from the editorial side of things. The publisher is not supposed to have undue influence over what goes on in the newsroom, like, at all. So if, if Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post now, he's not supposed to walk around the newsroom saying, hey, you, don't write about the Amazon. Don't write anything right. bad about Amazon. He's supposed to just hire an editor and let the editor do his job, her job, ideally, right? Um, so I don't know how much that happens anymore. There does seem to be a little bit of spill, and it's hard when your newspaper is owned or your television station yeah. is owned by Rupert Murdoch 
not to know what Rupert Murdoch likes when right. you see certain kinds of things rewarded and this and that. So, you know, there, there's a blurred, there's blurred lines where it's hard, especially on the, the I mean, I never watch cable news because I just think it's ridiculous. But if you turn that stuff on, it's hard to know which part of it is news and which part of it is opinion. And they sort of right. make it that way on purpose. Yeah, in terms of the blurred line, you know, uh, and, and you know, Jeff Bezos owning the post is a perfect example. You know, by all indications, he has stayed out of it, but we haven't really seen any uh, uh, examples of him trying to steer uh, coverage. But what also happens is, you know, these are relatively bright people who work there, so there's kind of like an unassumed. <laughs> I mean, if Amazon owns your newspaper, are you going to be pitching Amazon stories to your boss, or is this just kind of a, a collective agreement? Um, I can't off the top of my head, I don't know if Washington Post has done trailblazing uh, reporting on Amazon as labor practices and things, you know, and things like that. But let's be honest, you know, people understand how the game is played. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah, we haven't had any examples of Bezos shooting down stories, but are they pitching stories to begin with? People understand, look, careerism is a very strong motivating factor, particularly in the Beltway press, particularly understanding who owns you and what your boss's preferences are. Look, there's a reason the New York Times literally could not stop writing Hillary email stories in 2016. There, there was obviously a group thing. People understood that this, is, this, was, this got you to the front of the queue. We were talking about those editorial meetings at the mm -hmm. AP. They happened everywhere. People understood what the fever and the fury was. People understood what editors really wanted, uh, and they really wanted Hillary email stories. They really wanted Clinton Foundation stories. They really wanted Clint, uh, Hillary uh, giving private speeches story. That's how you rose to the top. That's how you got attention. And so, but the blurred lines that you described, it's kind of the opposite of what <laughs> they also understand what people don't want. And so when the ownership issue becomes confused and blurred, these are smart folks, and, and, and they understand where the minds are. Okay, the last one. Corruption. Some of these people, I don't know who they are. I'm not going to name anybody, but, you know, it stands to reason that if the, uh, the bad guys can, can acquire uh, somebody who for four years was the president of the goddamn United States and many of his uh, associates and seem to have an awful lot of power over senators, that purchasing a journalist is probably pretty simple to do. I don't think it costs quite as much. <laughs> well, you know, a few come to mind, and, and we won't get into it. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's a good question. You know, you, you do certainly – I have wondered over the, you know, the years who, you know, a few people, what, what's their real motivating factor here? They seem to be so far off. Uh, on these tangents and running interference and so determined to, to push a certain narrative. But yeah, you know, you, that's a good point. I, you know, look, you know, we, we wondered for, we wondered for four years, what does Trump have on these people? And, and these people uh, covered, uh, you know, politicians and businessmen <laughs> and, and maybe journalists too. Again, we, I go back to the same premise. He was running a criminal enterprise out of the yep. White House. He was. Uh, and, and the country has never seen that. The press has never seen it. Uh, we never really got our arms around it. It, it, it. it exploded into full view on January 6th, but that was just a part of it. That was just a part of the criminal enterprise he was running. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, 
I, I, nothing's off the table and we, we may find out shocking revelations years from now, but you and I and some other people actually won't be that shocked. <laughs> no, no, we will not. So, okay. Before we wrap up, what I want to, here's what the last thing I want to ask you is, yeah, if you could change one thing, if you could try to fix the media in one fundamental way, what would you do? What, what, what's a suggestion? Well, I think I just probably, I mean, in terms of like the political coverage and stuff, just get off of the, you know, just detach yourself from Republican spin. You know, the two main driving forces are Republicans are super savvy. And as I've said for a long time, every new, every Beltway news cycle for the last 20 years, every day has started from the same premise. What are Republicans angry about today? Uh, and then that, that, that's sort of the marching orders for, for DC newsrooms. And it has been forever, whether they're in power or they're out of power. And I would just love to see a break with that and just treat both parties the same and, and, and not view everything through this prism of, of, uh, you know, of, of kind of conservative propaganda, uh, which would be great, especially for the Biden years, um, because it just doesn't serve them well. Uh, and it, it, it creates this center right view of the press, even though we go back to our very early discussions, it runs counter to the narrative, right? The press is liberal. The press is, you know, oh, gave yeah. our time. He hated the press, therefore. But it's not. It's still attached to, I think, kind of the center right view. Uh, and it doesn't it just doesn't give Democrats or, or, or you know, um, or progressives enough voice. It's super quick example. Rush Limbaugh died. I read, cause, just because I wrote about it, I read 10 or 15 long articles about Rush Limbaugh's life. I don't think I saw a Democrat quoted in one. Not one. No interest in, in having a, a critic of Rush Limbaugh in, included in, in, in these overspan, in these, you know, these views of his life. They quoted 49 different Republicans, but it's just, to me, it was just a classic example uh, of just not even thinking about what progressives and Democrats think about news uh, and not even bothering to check in with them. I was going to ask you about that too. Did did you do anything special when he died? Did you rend garments, wear the hair shirt? Uh, did you fly your flag at half mast? Uh, it was hard. It's hard when you're you're glad someone's dead to uh, to tweet about I, it. You know, you have to be very careful. God forbid we should you know, we should uh, th this horrible man who's who's caused untold suffering to literally yeah. millions of Americans and made the country right. demonstrably worse. Heaven forfend that I should oh. be happy that he's gone. You know, it's it's between him, you know, him, Murdoch, and Roger Ailes were probably the three cancers on this country in the last quarter century. Look, the only the only the only thing I did I did, I did a piece of press run of after he died. The the only concession I made is I changed my headline at the last moment. It was going to be Rush Rush Limbaugh was an awful awful person. Uh, and I just I don't know. <laughs> I felt that was a little too on the head. So I, I, I did tweak my headline on that, but I, I I've tweeted it and I, I certainly feel it a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I was I was actually sort of surprised when he died because I thought he was lying about his cancer to get sympathy. I really did. Because oh, he's, he's such a piece of shit that I wouldn't put it past him. Anyway, enough about yeah. Rush enough about Rush Limbaugh. Ugh. Okay, let's get the sage right. going in here. This has been so great. Eric Bowler from Press Run. Check it out. His substack. What is it? Pressrun.substack.com. Is that what it is? Uh actually pressrun.media. Dot media. Okay. Yeah. Pressrun.media. That's easy enough to, to remember. I really encourage you to go uh, subscribe to his page. Thanks so much for stopping by. This was really a great discussion. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime.
The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian voiceover. Thanks to Stephanie St. John for the narration. Thanks to Allison Gill, Jason Smith, Mackenzie Mazell, and everyone else involved with producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. Visit gregoliar.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. Until next time, we shall prevail.